We have covered the first half of Yama Niyama and are ready to begin on the second half. So we come to Shocha, which means purity and cleanliness. Purity embraces the non-physical side of us and cleanliness the physical side. But both of them have the same purpose, unobstructed clarity of consciousness. When Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart in the Gospels, the word translated heart is cardia, which means core or center. So when we are pure of core at heart, in the very center of our being, the rest of our being will be pure also. And this is extremely important because Jesus says, For they shall see God. In other words, the eye of the Spirit will be perfectly cleared and God can be seen. Once someone asked Sri Ramakrishna, can you see God? And he said, well, of course you can see God. And let me tell you something, God is more real than you are. The Chandogya Upanishad tells us this, when the senses are purified, the heart is purified. When the heart is purified, there is constant and unceasing remembrance of the self. When there is constant and unceasing remembrance of the self, all bonds are loosed and freedom is attained. So we can see that Shocha is not a minor one of these commandments of yoga that is very basic, very essential. And that's why also St. John, the beloved apostle, said, Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. In other words, to be as pure and clear as God. And we can say, how could I ever do that? It's quite simple. We're part of God. Our essential being is the essential being of God. It's really our nature to be pure. As we can expect, Vyasa and Shankara both gives us uh, an expanded view. Vyasa says, internal shocha is the washing away of the stains of the mind. Shankara says, shocha implies purity in seeing and listening and washing away the stains of the mind such as desire and anger by the waters of meditation. There, as yogis, this is the final word, isn't it? Through meditation, this is the way shocha is cultivated. In fact, all the yama niyamas are cultivated through meditation. But let's go back a bit to the physical. Physical cleanliness is important because it eliminates bodily toxins and prevents disease, which would distract us in our spiritual search. And then, of course, inner purification is important for it eliminates mental toxins and prevents inner ills. Now, for the yogi, the most important external aspect of purity is purity of diet. That's because the food we eat determines the vibration of our body and our mind. For this reason, it's only wisdom to eat a purely vegetarian diet consisting of grains, vegetables, and fruits. 
all animal products should be avoided, as Gandhi advocated, but was persecuted over. Those who carefully and steadily adhere to a vegetarian diet will perceive for themselves how valuable it is to keep such a dietary observance. Not only will their general health improve greatly, assuming, of course, that they eat a wise vegetarian diet, they will see how much lighter and intuitive their minds become. A vegetarian diet greatly facilitates the practice of meditation because it makes very subtle states of consciousness easily attainable and perceptible. It may take a while for those who have not been vegetarians to experience this, but it won't be an extremely long time. For help in beginning and maintaining a vegetarian diet, uh, please look at the Yogi's Recommended Reading List at OCOI.org because vegetarian diet is really a crown jewel for every yogi because it embodies the observance of ahimsa, asteya, aparigraha, shocha, and tapas and produces purity and clarity of mind and heart. Next, we come to santosha, which means contentment, and peacefulness. It also means happiness. Contentment and peacefulness, there are more of the passive aspects, but the very positive aspect is happiness and joy, ultimately, true anand itself. Santosha is a fundamentally cheerful attitude based on a harmonious inner condition and an intellectually spiritual outlook. This too is possible only through meditation and is one of the signs of progress in meditation. When Santosha is cultivated, this up and down and up and down, valleys and peaks, a kind of experience that many humans go through will not occur in the yogi's life and mind. However, we can't equate this with the just intellectual positive thinking, nor a kind of forced external acting happy, which is a camouflage, not a real state at all. It's an inner-based quality that occurs spontaneously through the practice of yoga. It doesn't need to be cultivated or acted out any more than the blossoming of a flower. It will happen when the yogi is truly a yogi. Santosha is also contentment with simple living and relates to aparigraha, actually, non-possessiveness. Vyasa defines Santosha as being satisfied with the resources at hand and so not desiring more. And this is very valuable for us because People now in our modern time, especially in America, are absolutely addicted to more, more, give me more. Shankara says, as a result of the satisfaction with what is at hand, even though there may be some lack, he has the feeling it is enough. So Santosha is freedom from the bigger and more is better syndrome that grips most of us, even when we're not aware of it. 
and it's also the absence of negative emotions in the, and the presence of positive emotions. So in its highest form, Santoshma is, Santosha sorry, is a contentment and peace that comes from resting in our own spirit, in our own self. The next rung on the ladder is tapas or tapasya, which means austerity and practical spiritual discipline in the sense that it really produces a result. It isn't its own reward. It is leading to a very higher reward. Tapas literally means to generate heat in the sense of awakening or stimulating the whole of our being to higher consciousness. It's commonly applied to the practice of all spiritual discipline, especially that which involves some form of physical austerity or self-denial. The sages of ancient India were very familiar with the principles of physics, and they formulated their symbols accordingly. When an object is heated, its molecules begin to move at a faster rate than usual. Thus, tapas is a procedure that causes all the components of the yogi to vibrate at a much higher rate and to eventually become permanently established in that higher vibration. Regarding the physical aspect of tapasya, Vyasa wrote, Tapas is endurance of the opposites. The opposites are hunger and thirst, heat and cold, standing and sitting, complete silence, and merely verbal silence. Shankar says these opposites may occur naturally or by our own choice through self-denial. And both Vyasa and Shankar say that tapas is always performed in the light of the capability of the yogi and is never exaggerated, strenuous, or beyond the yogi's natural ability. Though we must be very sure that we're being honest about those qualities. Fundamentally, tapas is spiritual discipline that produces a perceptible result, particularly in the form of purification. But it is never a matter of mere thought or desire. It is always practical action toward that end. Consequently, whenever tapas is spoken of, it always implies the practice of yoga and the observances that facilitate yoga practice. Now, we are dual in nature, conscious and energy, spirit and matter. This being so, we need to realize that although we are essentially consciousness, that is spirit, we are also energy, and therefore we are our bodies and our minds, at least at this time in our evolution, where our bodies and minds are a part of our evolutionary mechanisms. Our lives need to be lived in this perspective. For example, when we understand this truth, we understand why such observances or disciplines as yama, niyama, vegetarianism, and moral conduct are so beneficial and necessary for us. The next step is swadhyaya, which is introspective self-study and spiritual study, but primarily self-study. But the spiritual texts that deal with the nature of the true self and the pondering of them is an extension of the inner swadhyaya. Vyasa says, swadhyaya is study of works on liberation. 
and he uses the word moksha. Shankara says, Swadhyaya is study of works on liberation, such as the Upanishads. But it also means keeping a very careful watch on the ego-based mind, so as to be aware of its delusive and destructive tricks. For it isn't some external devil or Satan we need to fear, but the enemy within, which is our ego-mind complex that has blinded and enslaved us from life to life and has no intention of giving up its domination of us just because we practice meditation. Therefore, we must be wary of its cunning and subtle ways and carefully analyze the debris it casts up into our consciousness in the form of thoughts and emotions. I can't begin to recount to you the number of people that have come to me and built a case for their self-destruction, completely deluded by their ego. And at the early days, I used to point out the fallacy of their egoic delusions. They would say, oh, thank you, thank you, I'm really glad we had this talk. Go away, and in a week or two, come back and have a whole new set of delusions. Finally, I realized that it is as C.S. Lewis says. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. So I realized, why upset these people and keep them having to be creative in more and more fabrications of foolishness? And so they come and say thus and thus and thus. And I say, well, let's see how it comes out. Uh, actually, I was really following the example of Ma Anandamai because people often came to her and said, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. And of course, they didn't really have that desire. But they felt it sounded noble and good. And Ma would say, Let's wait and see what happens. And I can tell you, in the 19 years that I knew her, the what that happened was never what they claimed should happen. Now, Mother sometime would say, let us see what God does. Now, when Ma said that, it meant that the person was going to do the right and true thing. It was very interesting. It could take some years but you could finally realize by Mother's very simple com comments that she was actually revealing the future of that person and their ideas and their claims. So we alone have to watch our mind. It's no good having somebody else do it for us. I know we have the idea, live with the teacher and the teacher uh, watches you and reprimands you and at every point says this, this, this. This is nonsense. Can somebody eat for you? Can somebody walk for you? Can somebody think for you? Absolutely not think for you. And you know, a person can't discriminate for you. You have to do it on your own. How to do it? By clarifying your mind through yoga. The yoga you can practice when you follow yama and niyama.
So we not only study the self, we also study the not-self and don't mistake the two. Of course, the highest form of Swadhyaya is what is known as Atma Vichar, inquiry into the self. We must never let go of that vital question, who am I? We must do all we can to find the answer, not from others or from our intellectual ponderings, but by direct experience of ourselves as pure spirit. Timney has written this really valuable paragraph. Though Swadhyaya begins with intellectual study, it must be carried through the progressive stages of reflection, meditation, tapas, etc., to the point where the sadhaka is able to gain all knowledge or devotion from within by his own efforts. That is the significance of the prefix swa, that's the self, in swadhyaya. He leaves all external aids such as books, discourses, etc., and dives into his own mind for everything he needs in his quest. Now, this is not an anti-intellectual statement, but it means that for a while we learn from these other things, and then finally we can only learn from our own self-perception, our own self-experience. The final step of yama and niyama is Ishwara Pranidhana, offering of the life to God. This is far more on every level than just religious devotion, much more than any kind of discipline or self-denial done in the name of spirituality. It is the giving to God of the yogi's entire life. Can I repeat it? It is the giving to God of the yogi's entire life life, and that includes the yogi's life sphere. Not just a giving of material offerings or occasional tidbits of devotion to God, even if they are sincere. So, Taimni points out, the fact that the progressive practice of Ishwara Pranidhana can ultimately lead to samadhi shows definitely that it signifies a much deeper process of transformation in the sadhaka than a mere acceptance of whatever experience and ordeals come to him in the course of his life. Because you see, he's saying there's some people who think that offering the life is just giving up, saying, oh Lord, thy will be done. Whatever comes, this is all right. No, it's more than that. So Timely continues. The practice of Ishwara Pranidhana therefore begins with the mental assertion not the, the, not my will, but thy will be done. But it does not enter there. There is a steady effort to bring about a continuous recession of consciousness from the level of the personality, which is a seat of ego consciousness, into the consciousness of the Supreme, whose will is working out in the manifest world. And, as Svetiketahu was told, each one of us is that. A little more. Ishwara Pranidhana is total giving. God is a total being, and the giving must also be total. 
The yogi does not eke out droplets of his life, but pours out his entire life in offering unto God, that is, in the search for God. He gives all that he has, even his very self. And this is only sensible, for the entire aim of yoga is a reunion of the individual spirit with the Supreme Spirit, the falling of the drop into the immortal sea. Ishwara Pranidhana anticipates this divine union and ensures its accomplishment. This is why the first lawgiver, Manu, said that the highest sacrifice, um, a maidha is the word he used, is purusha maidha, the sacrifice of the person, of the spirit. As I've said, Ishwara Pranidhana, according to Patanjali, actually leads to samadhi. So Vyasa says, as a result of Ishwara Pranidhana, which is bhakti, the Lord bends down to him and rewards him, and the attainment of samadhi and its fruit is near at hand. This is very important. Ishwara Pranidhana, offering a life to God, that is real bhakti. The business of, I don't want to be sugar, I want to eat sugar, is not bhakti, according to this definition. Neither is, I know God wants me to enjoy my things in life, and therefore I'm doing it, and that's a praise for God. No, it isn't. Ishwara Pranidhana is, in itself, God experience. So Shankara says, the Lord comes face to face with him and gives his grace to the yogi who is fully devoted to him. The grace is effortlessly gained through the omnipotence of the Supreme Lord. By that grace of the Lord, samadhi and its fruit are soon attainable. There's nothing here about all kinds of yogic gymnastics, cultivation of breathlessness, etc., So by this we know that yoga is a thoroughly God-centered endeavor, one which makes God the center of life and its aim and results in the merging of the individual consciousness with the cosmic consciousness of Ishwara. So now we can sum up the whole subject of Yama Niyama. The Mundaka Upanishad says, this effulgent self is to be realized within the lotus of the heart by continence, by steadfastness in truth, by meditation, and by superconscious vision. Their impurities washed away, the seers realize him. And let's close with timely. The student of yoga philosophy will see in these unusual developments which take place on practicing yama-niyama, the tremendous possibilities which lie hidden in the apparently simple things of life. It appears that one has only to penetrate deeply into any manifestation of life to encounter the most fascinating mysteries and sources of power. Physical science, which deals with the crudest manifestation of life, touches the mere fringe of these mysteries, and the results which it has achieved are little short of miraculous. There is, therefore, nothing to be surprised at in the fact that the yogi 
who dives into the far subtler phenomena of mind and consciousness, finds still deeper mysteries and extraordinary powers. I don't think it could be said any better. I know I couldn't, so I won't try. <laughs>